Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. Our first story this week is a topic near and dear to our hearts, both in the UK and Ireland, because it's about peat bogs, and they cover about a sixth of the island of Ireland and about a tenth of the UK. But a study that you found in Nature Climate Change recently looked at specifically frozen peatlands across northern Europe. So what did they find? Yeah, well, it's really concerning, Carla. This is about the northern peatlands, as you say, across Finland, Sweden, Uh, and also parts of northern Russia. And uh, previously, it's been thought that they would remain stable until the 2070s under climate change scenarios. But a new analysis sadly suggests they may begin thawing as early as the 2040s. And of course, peatlands are a vast store of carbon. Actually, uh, the most recent calculations suggest there's more carbon in peatlands than in trees in all those forests, which have had so much attention over the years. And of course, just last week, Kawa, we were talking about the dangers of the Amazon passing a tipping point and actually starting to become a source of carbon to the atmosphere rather than a sink. And sadly, this latest study suggests the same might happen about peatlands um, and that this tipping point could happen much sooner and could release billions of tonnes of carbon that would further accelerate climate change. And what they looked at for the University of Leeds study, they've pinpointed in new detail where local climates will become unsuitable for peatland locked away. And in these parts of Finland, Norway, Sweden and a small part of northwest Russia, they estimate it will become too warm for permafrost peatland by the 2040s. It might take a bit longer in Western Siberia, but it all just goes to emphasize, you know, if if uh, this would leave the world, if this all happened, this would leave the world with around 40 billion tons of carbon, twice the amount contained in all of Europe's forests at risk of being released into the atmosphere. So it just goes to show we've got to move faster. Yeah, I was reading a quote from one of the scientists involved in the study, and and uh, he was saying that this is really turning these sinks, these carbon sinks, which are in the form of peatlands, into sources of carbon. And he called it depressingly fascinating. Would you agree with those words? Yeah, it's a good way of putting it, isn't it? And I think you and I kind of increasingly used to depressingly fascinating bits of news and information and studies, aren't we? Peatlands do need to receive a lot more attention than they've received in the past. I mean, I think probably for most people, people are sort of kind of really used to to forests being the kind of poster child, if you like, of the the interaction between climate and nature. But actually, peatlands are the most important terrestrial store of carbon on the planet. Um, As I was saying, the most recent research says, says that. So it really is a case that uh, it's a big concern. And there's so many other things really uh, associated with this as well. Of course, peatlands also hold water and are very important for holding water back in the landscape. Um, So there's big implications if we start to see our peatlands uh, both thawing out in the northern latitudes and then releasing carbon. But also the more peatlands we lose, Uh, the more of a problem that is for climate and water regulation generally. So we've got to get much better at this. And of course, it raises the issue also about how peatlands are being degraded from other sources. I mean, you know, I personally have been campaigning for about 20 years to try and stop garden centres and retailers selling peat for use in gardens. It just strikes me as absolutely mad. You know, it's the equivalent of chopping down tropical rainforest and and using it for for single-use chopsticks or something. It's crazy. 
And uh, in the UK, after a lot of campaigning, they are now consulting the UK government and consulting and banning the sale of peat in the UK. But they're still going to say they're going to take two, three years over it. And more generally, still vast quantities of peat are sold right across Western Europe. And we've got to address this. It's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, we had a success here in Ireland in that we managed to stop extracting it for power use in 2020, which is crazy that it was being used, you know, for our power plants. But still, there's an issue with the horticultural industry and that they feel that they need this as a product. Uh, We're still exporting 11 times more than we actually need. Uh, You know, so it's still an export market for us. But there is this big fight going on right now in the horticultural sector about the use of peat for their industry. It strikes me as mad, Cara. You know, you've got people sort of saying that their petunias are, petunias are more important than the climate. I just don't get it, really. The next story, Craig, that you've brought us reminded me of the interview we did last week with communications expert Terry Prone for her Green Life interview. And, and she was telling us that one of the proudest moments that she had as a policy advisor to the Irish government was actually putting an end to the sale of leaded petrol here, which was banned in both the UK and Ireland in the year 2000. But the story that you brought us from the New Scientists uh, this week looked at the impact on people's IQ levels in the United States based on their exposure to leaded petrol. So leaded petrol was banned there in 1996. I would have been one of those people affected by those fumes. How much damage has actually been done to my intelligence, Craig? Yeah, well, this is one of those stories, Carla, where, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating that you can have action taken sometimes decades ago, and, and sometimes it does take decades for the scientists to catch up and understand what impact it had, uh, which I think is a cautionary tale for us. And, you know, to be honest, it was always known that uh, lead in petrol was harming uh, the uh, growing sort of intelligence of young children, but the details weren't sort of fully understood. And this was a very significant study undertaken by Duke University, looked at uh, 11,600 children aged one to five from blood samples drawn between 1976 and 2016, right across the United States. And they do estimate that that lead in petrol has had a Uh, you know, notable effect, you know, they're talking about an average drop in IQ of 2.6 points uh, across the sort of uh, US population at that time. And actually for people born in the mid to late 1960s, who would have suffered the highest amount of lead and petrol in the subsequent decades of the 1970s and 80s and 90s before it was banned, may have lost an average of 5.9 points on their IQ. So thank goodness it was then banned Uh, as you say, at the late 1990s here in Europe and in 2000, the United States. And what I would say, Carl, you said about what impact has it had on your IQ. Um, But I let's put it this way. I'm I'm a little bit older than you, I think. That's how I'd like to put it. (laughs) Others might put it differently. Um, So if uh, a little bit older, I mean, I was born in the early 1970s. So that means uh, it would have affected me more than it's affected you, arguably. So actually, I come off a little bit worse out of the story, I reckon. <laughs> well, that's relief for me anyway. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, though, that the, that the IQ, if you were born in the, in the 1970s, or I guess if you grew up in the 1970s or 1980s, this would have been a real problem for all of us, both in the UK and Ireland and also in the United States, uh, breathing in these fumes. And it's probably not just IQ, is it? It's probably other health effects, too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, something I've certainly heard talked about many times before, and this is pretty well established in the science, is that lead in petrol was also associated with increasingly violent societies. And this sounds extraordinary, I know. But actually, if you look at it, uh, right around the world, in many different societies around the world, 
um, actually there's been a lowering of violence in a society in quite clearly measured well, almost exactly 20 years after um, uh, petrol was banned. So it's quite extraordinary. You see it in many, many different countries. So um, I think really the big lesson from all of this is, is yet again, the thing that we've said many times before is sadly it takes a long time perhaps for the science to catch up on uh, the impact of these kind of pollutants. So hang on, and, so and you, are you actually saying that that they've been able to statistically link the, the, the incidence of lead in petrol with actually a society being more violent? Has that been proven? Yeah, that is crazy, have. isn't it? That's been shown in many parts of the world. It's quite an extraordinary thing. And it might not be, you know, it's not like a necessarily huge thing, but it's certainly statistically uh, significant. And uh, certainly I've seen studies in the past that have said that. So I think the point is here, is like on all of these issues, the, the really scary thing is that we don't yet understand the impact that many pollutants are having on our health and our wider environment, and us just perhaps being a bit more cautious in advance uh, before we fully understand it all, uh, what probably makes a good sense. Yeah, I'm kind of stunned by that. I mean, do they know what the what the cause is, why lead would make people more violent, for example? I don't think it's fully understood. Um, I think there's been some hypotheses about it, but there's certainly been... You know, and we know that correlation is not necessarily the same as causation, um, but I think it's pretty well understood in the science that the two uh, are linked in some way. And uh, again, it's one of those things that requires uh, greater study. But, you know, thank goodness, uh, thank goodness it's being banned now uh, in the vast majority of the world. I mean, there's still a handful of countries where uh, lead is still added to petrol. Yeah, in the US, it's actually still an issue when it comes to lead that was in paint. So even though we don't put lead in paint anymore, there are still a lot of houses where leaded paint is prevalent. And when you start scraping it back or remodeling that house, you expose people to that lead again. So it's still a very dangerous issue that kind of lingers in society. Yeah, the legacy issue for sure. Absolutely. Finally, Craig, I think we've seen lawsuits against Shell and other oil companies in the past for their role in climate change. But Shell is actually back in the news this week. And this time it's personal because their 13 executive and non-executive directors are being sued by Client Earth for their failure to tackle climate change. Give us the details. Yeah, this is significant because this is an action by as you say, client Earth, which has had quite a lot of a success in the past in bringing legal cases against companies, in particular on climate issues as well. And on this occasion, client Earth have bought a minimum number of shares in Shell and are now bringing a case as shareholders um, on the directors and saying that they bear personal responsibility for not preparing to cut emissions fast enough. Uh, this is really significant. They're doing this under the duties that directors have under UK company law, and they're looking to commence legal proceedings against the company's 13 executive and non-executive directors for what it said was the, what Client Earth said is the board's failure to adopt a strategy that truly aligns with the 2015 Paris Agreement. And I thought this was really interesting, one, because um, almost whether it's successful or not, I think it will have big implications for the way companies kind of think about these issues. Um, I think it, it will mean more and more companies will and directors will start to think, should they at least be taking the minimum steps to make it harder for them to be held personally responsible? Um, but I also think it's uh, we're just going to see more and more of this. I think over time, you're going to see more and more attempts by activist groups and actually others, maybe institutional investors as well, on bringing legal actions against directors in the worst polluting companies. Uh, that are failing to really align with uh, global standards on tackling this. Now, of course, Shell says 
Uh, it has a plan to halve emissions from its global operations by 2030, which is industry leading. And then its strategy to be net zero uh, emissions business by 2050 is also globally leading. But the big argument here is whether they should just look at the emissions from their own operations or also whether they should be doing something to cut the carbon associated with the burning of their oil and gas uh, by customers as well. So that's where the kind of um, argument will be. But I think it's exciting because, um, you know, as I said, I think it will shift the whole kind of debate. And I, I think there's every chance they might have some success. You and I will know, Carla, that our uh, former friends in our, our friends and former colleagues and friends of the Netherlands were very successful with a court action they brought against Shell in Dutch courts last year, um, which is sort of forcing Shell to up their game as well. So I just think this is going to become the new normal for the most polluting companies is they're going to see activist groups constantly taking them on in the courts. Yeah, this is kind of groundbreaking because it's the first time where the executives have been held legally accountable rather than the company as a whole. And am I right that the only reason that's possible is because Client Earth is a shareholder in Shell? Yeah, that's right. So under UK company law, the duties uh, on directors, the legal duties are owed to shareholders. Uh, and uh, in doing so, and you know, NGOs had a big uh, campaign about this, but, and I was involved in it 20 years ago when company law was being changed in the UK. They do have to have regard to society and communities and so on, but ultimately those duties are owned, owed to directors, uh, to shareholders, and therefore it's shareholders that have to bring these actions. But of course, you don't have to buy many shares to become a shareholder. I mean, it's a funny old thought, Cara. I have a handful of shares in Shell from when I was doing activist uh, actions uh. at annual general meetings 20 years ago. Uh, and I've still got a few. I don't know what to do with them. It cost me more to get rid of them than to um, than, than, than actually their worth. Um, but this is a classic tactic, activist tactic, to buy a handful of shares in these companies, uh, just enough to then to be able to bring these kind of legal actions or to get into the annual general meetings and make a bit of a noise at, at the very least. And that's what we're seeing here. But I think client earth's action here takes it to the next level. Yeah, I, I was looking at Shell's commitments uh, to reduce emissions, and they're very focused on the idea of the carbon intensity of their products, but not actually the absolute emissions. And they're arguing that that they don't feel they need to be held responsible for the emissions of the, of the actual products, particularly while governments are doing little to regulate consumer demand. So it's interesting they're kind of passing the buck back to governments there in their arguments. Yeah, and I don't think that washes really for me. I mean, particularly as you see that kind of retailers in particular have, I think, accepted the responsibility to help their customers reduce their social environmental footprints. You have big companies like Unilever, which, of course, makes washing powder and lots of other household products. Um, they have really bold commitments about trying to cut these what are called technically scope three emissions. In other words, the emissions associated with the use of their products by customers. So I think plenty of the corporate, plenty of companies have now accepted that they have responsibility to try and help customers cut their emissions. And I, I think Shell's going to find it hard to wriggle out of this one, at least in the court of public opinion. Whether they manage to wriggle out of it in the court of law is another matter. Yeah, well, assuming you're not a director of Shell, this could be considered a good news story. And I'm looking forward to hearing the outcome of that case. So thanks for the rundown on the Planet's Weekly Big News, Craig. Thanks, Carla. Speak next week.